We're going to be in uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10 today, and uh, we're going to get there in just a second, but I uh, want to begin by talking to you for a second about marriage. Now, um, Jennifer and I, this summer, will have been married for 25 years. Is that right, Jennifer? That's right. 25 years this summer, and uh, that's a long time. And I know a lot of you guys have been, uh, I say a lot, there's probably a handful of you in here that have been married longer than 25 years but if you haven't been married that long, I want to give you some advice. And here's the advice that I'd like to give you. That in every marriage, you go through a lot of good times and you go through difficult times. And one of the things that Jennifer and I have sort of figured out and realized is that when you go through difficult times in your marriage, one of the things that you need to do is you need to go back to the altar. You need to go back to the altar. You go back to the day that you were married. Let me explain to you what I mean by that. So, shared with you before that the New Testament was written in Greek. It's a really descriptive language, and so we have one word for love, right? But the Greek language has several different words that all get, they're all different meanings, and they all get translated into the English word love. One of them is phileo. That's a means of the emotional feelings of love. So, when you first started dating somebody, maybe your spouse, and you fell in love, Whatever that means. That's what you were feeling. You were feeling this infatuation, this intense feeling of emotional love. The other Greek word is eros. It's where we get our English word erotic. That's also translated in the Bible as love. Those are sexual and passionate feelings and experiences of love. You have the Greek word agape, which is an action, which means that you ought to display agape no matter what you're feeling. It's the action of showing someone love. Now, again, in every marriage, that agape ought to be there. But here's what we've discovered, and I've seen it in my ministry, and in my own marriage, is that those feelings of phileo and those feelings of eros sort of ebb and flow, depending on what season of your marriage you're in. Sometimes those feelings of phileo and eros are there uh, intensely, and sometimes in different places and times in your marriage, they're not there that uh, intensely. Now, I guarantee you, some of you here that are newly married, or you're dating, or you're engaged, just heard me say that, the eros and phileo come ebb and flow, and you're thinking in the back of your mind that there's no way that that'll ever happen to us. That Matt, Pastor Matt, you obviously don't know our love, right? And, And that... Um, I will always, I know you're looking at this person thing, I will always be madly and passionately in love with this person that I just married. Well, if that's what you're thinking today, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go find a couple that's been married for more than 10 years and tell that to them and they will lovingly laugh in your face in the name of Jesus. (laughs) Because the reality is, is that everybody starts out with these intense feelings of phileo and eros, but then inevitably... You know, life happens. Throwing the mortgage, throwing some taxes, throwing a couple of kids, and those feelings are not always intense as they can be. And so what do I mean that if you're in that place, you need to go back to the altar? Well, one of the things I do when I, I do marriage counseling with people, and I don't always do marriage counseling, but I, I do it sometimes, not very good at it, but when I do it, one of the things I do is I make people sit in front of each other, and I have them look at each other and have one of them begin and tell the other one why they got married. Like, tell them, say, why did you get married in the first place? I have the guy look at the wife and say, hey, you remember when your wife was wearing the wedding dress, she walked through the door with her dad, and you saw her for the first time 
What did you feel in that moment? What were you thinking? What were the feelings that you were experiencing? And then I make the woman do it. Make her look at her husband and say, when you walked through that door with your dad and you saw that guy standing there, what, what, what were you experiencing? What were the feelings that you had? And I do that because if you're going through a difficult time, if you'll go back to the altar and you remember the commitment that you made, and you remember why you made the commitment, it'll help you get through those rough times. And at the end of the day, that's what Peter is doing in this text that we're going to look at today. It's a difficult text, but it's a rich text. And what he's doing is he's taking us back to the altar. Not the altar of our marriage, but he's taking us back to the altar of our salvation. Now everybody listen, I want you to hear what I'm about to say. What he's doing in the text today is he's showing us that if you've been saved, that if you've accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior, and you've received the forgiveness and the grace of God here today, his whole point is that makes you one of the most blessed, one of the most unique, one of the most privileged people that has ever lived in the history of the world. He's going to take us back on this journey to the altar of our salvation so that we would remember our first love. In Jesus Christ. And so that's my prayer for you. Prayed for you all week that today that you look at this text and that you'd remember the day that you gave your life to Christ and you would restore, the Lord would restore to you the joy of your salvation like King David prayed for. All right, so let's read this together. I tell you what, let's look at verse 8, 1 Peter 1 8. That's where we left off last week. Peter's talking about our salvation. And how we have faith, even though we've never seen God, we believe in him. And then because of that, we've obtained salvation of our souls. So in verse 8, he says, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you not see him, now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Okay, so he's talking about the fact that we're saved. Then in verse 10, 11 is when he begins this journey. Back to the altar of our salvation, he's going to talk about how amazing our salvation really is and why we ought to have joy in it today. So look at verse 10. He says, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Now, what in the world is he talking about? Okay, keep in mind, going back on a journey to our salvation, to the altar, to remember the joy of our salvation. The first thing he does is he talks about the Old Testament prophets. And he talks about, again, he's trying to remind you of why you ought to be fired up that you're saved. And he talks about the role that the Old Old Testament prophets played in your salvation. And he makes the statement the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours. So what's he talking about? He's talking about all the old hype Old Testament guys and about how back in the day when they were writing the Bible, what they were doing is they were prophesying about this future grace that you and I would receive through this coming Messiah who would come and die and pay for our sins. Now here's the thing. When they were writing about it, what we're about to see is that they didn't know who it was. They knew a Savior was coming. They knew there was a guy going to come that would be God in the flesh. He'd save us from sins. They didn't know who he was, but we now know it's Jesus, right? And so what Peter's doing is he's talking about these Old Testament prophets like Moses. Don't turn there. Just listen. Genesis 3.14. 
All the way back in the third chapter of Genesis, first book in the Bible, you start seeing Jesus. Genesis 3.14, it says, The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field, and on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And so Satan's tricked Adam and Eve. They've sinned. God says, You're going to, you're, you know, cursed are you or whatever. And then watch what he says in Genesis 3.15. He's speaking to Satan. And God said, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now what he just did, church, listen carefully, is he just called, God just called this shot on the virgin birth. All the way back in Genesis chapter 3, God is talking about someone that would come from the seed of a woman. Now, that's a fascinating thing to say, because women don't have seed. Men are the only one who have seed. And so, church, who is the one person in all of history that was not born of a seed of a man? Who is the one person in all of history that was born of the seed of a woman that would come and crush the head of Satan? He's talking about Jesus all the way back in Genesis 3, Moses was. Peter's no doubt in, in verse 10 talking about Samuel. So in 2 Samuel 7, 12, it says, when your days are fulfilled, you will lie down with your fathers. Talking about David. You will lie down with your fathers, and I will raise up your offspring after you, and who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom, and he shall build a house for my name. So God's speaking to David. He says, somebody, your offspring's going to come, and, um, and, and he's, I'm going to establish his kingdom, and he's going to build a house for my name. So no doubt David's thinking, ah, oh, he's talking about Solomon, my son. But then... Watch what he says next. In, uh, in verse 13, he says, He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So he wasn't talking about Solomon. He was talking about somebody else. Some that would, someone would come from the line of David who would have a kingdom that lived forever. So who came from the line of David that has an eternal kingdom? He's talking about Jesus. So Samuel's talking about Jesus. In verse 10, Peter's making reference to the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 53, 4, Isaiah wrote, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Verse 5, it says, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him the chastisement brought us peace, and by his wounds we are healed. So hundreds of years before Jesus ever comes up on the scene, Isaiah is writing about this man that's going to come, and he's going to be crushed for our sins. He's going to be chastised for our sins, and by his wounds, he's pierced, he's crushed. By his wounds, we're going to be healed. So hundreds of years before Jesus ever shows up on the scene, Isaiah was prophesying about this coming Messiah. And so the first thing that Peter does is he, he's writing to these people, going through suffering and trials, and he said, hey, I want you to have joy in your salvation. I want you, the fact that you're saved, to blow your mind, because here's why. It's because the fact that you're saved means that you're living in a reality that God has been planning for thousands of years. It's not an accident. The fact that you're saved means that you are the fulfillment of a plan that God has been enacting all the way back from the first days of creation. Now look what he says next. Look at verse 10. He says, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, watch what he says, those prophets searched and inquired carefully, 
inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ. Now, that's a fancy way of saying that he's saying, look, when the prophets were writing these prophecies that they knew that the Holy Spirit revealed to him, to them, that's what the word indicating means, that the Holy Spirit was indicating them that that was going to happen, that it was, it was not just some flowery language they were writing down, but there really was going to be this guy that was going to come and die for their sins. But then the other thing that Peter just said, check this out, is that the prophets wanted to know who he was. This other thing Peter just said, is that as Isaiah was sitting down writing this prophecies about this, the Holy Spirit was speaking to him and through him that there's going to be this man that's going to come and die, pierce for our transgressions, pay for our sins, that Isaiah was sitting there realizing that this was going to happen one day. What Peter just said is that Isaiah wanted to know who he was, that he longed to see him, longed to know when he was coming. Look at verse 10 again. He says, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, watch what it says, they searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit in Christ was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ. And so Peter writes to these people and says, here's what you need to know. That when these guys were sitting down and they were writing the Old Testament um, prophecies about the Messiah, it said, one, they knew that a Messiah was coming, but he's like, I want you to know that they long to experience themselves, the Messiah. They long to know who he was. They long to know when he was coming. Now listen, why do you think that all those amazing old dead guys long to know who the Messiah was going to be and long to know when he was coming? And the answer to the question is this is because they wanted to experience the grace and the forgiveness of God themselves. You, if you're a Christian today, what this is teaching us is that you have experienced something. All You have experienced something. You have received something, this grace, this salvation that the Old Testament prophets longed to see and experience, but they never got to. Y'all remember the song, Oh Holy Night? So if you, do y'all know the Oh Holy Night? That's an incredible song, maybe the best song ever. And there's a line in that song that says, Long lay the world in sin and error pining. Long lay the world in sin and error pining. And so the point was, is that before Jesus came, the world was just long, was just in this long era where sin reigned. Where sin reigned and death reigned. And all those prophets wrote about this coming Messiah that one day he would come and make it all right. But long way the world and sin and our pining. And then the song says, until he appeared. And the soul felt its worth. And so Peter's saying, look, all those incredible men of God, Moses, Isaiah, Samuel, Elijah, they all desperately wanted to be a part of the generation that saw the Messiah. They longed. They hungered to be a part of the generation where this Messiah would come and the soul would feel its worth, but they all died before they personally got to experience this prophecy, this person that they prophesied about. Again, he's trying to show you how amazing it is that you've received it. Now, real quickly, I want you to know the Old Testament prophets did go to heaven. They did go to heaven. It tells us that in 11, Hebrews eleven thirteen. 13. writer says, these all died in faith not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar 
And so the writer of Hebrews is saying that all those prophets, they longed to see the Messiah. They longed to experience the Messiah. And they didn't get to see him, but they believed he was coming. And that faith made them go to heaven. Here's the other thing, is that some of those prophets actually, those Old Testament guys actually did get to see Jesus, the Messiah, with their own eyes. They got to see the Savior that they longed to see so badly. We know that in the story of the transfiguration. So Peter comes, or rather Jesus comes comes to Peter, James, and John one day, and he says, hey, boys, y'all want to come up on the mountain with me? I want to show you something cool. And they said, sure. So they come up on this mountain. And when they got there, Scripture says that Jesus was transfigured before them. It's, um, Jesus had this moment where we see his, kind of a small picture of his divinity. His face started shining. His, His clothes became white. Let me read it to you, Matthew 17, 2. It says he was transfigured before them and his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. Now watch verse 3. Crazy, crazy stuff happens here in verse 3. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. Can y'all imagine Peter sitting there just chilling out, doing his thing? Jesus says, come on, let's go to the mountain. Sure. All of a sudden you look up, his face is shining, his clothes are white, and there's Moses and Elijah sitting there talking to Jesus. That, would, that was blowing his mind. Now, Scripture never comes right out and tells us why Moses and Elijah appear with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. It never tells us. But I have a feeling that it was probably something like this. I have a feeling that one day, you know, Jesus is cruising around with his disciples. And up in heaven, God looks at Moses and Elijah and says, hey, boys, y'all remember those prophecies you wrote about all those years ago about a coming Messiah that would save the world from its sin? He looks at two of them and says, you guys want to go see it for yourself? And they're like, heck yeah. (laughs) Except they probably didn't say heck to God. They're like, yes, sir, you know. (laughs) So he lets them go, and and they're talking with Jesus. And we actually get to know what they talked about. Luke chapter 9 tells us what they talk about. And basically, Elijah and Moses and Jesus were sitting there talking. And basically what happens is Jesus tells them, hey, guys, you know those prophecies you wrote about all those years ago about how somebody was going to come and die on a cross and, and forgive the world of their sin? It's happening, and you're going to get to see it with your own eyes. It's happening. And it's going to be unbelievable. Guys, the whole point today As Peter is trying to restore in your heart and mind the joy of your salvation. That that, that your salvation is so amazing. And he does this by, by basically letting us know that the fact that you know Jesus is the Messiah. And the fact that you have seen and personally experienced the forgiveness of God through his grace. That that alone ought to blow your minds. It ought to blow your minds because what it means, if you're a person that's experienced, you know Jesus, and you've experienced his forgiveness, that means you've experienced something that the greatest men of God that have ever lived long desperately to see and experience, and they never got to do it. And Peter's saying that ought to produce in you an incredible amount of joy today. Um, If that's not cool enough, then he talks about another group of people that long to experience what you've gotten to experience through your salvation. Let me read it. Look at verse 12. Peter says, It was revealed to them, those are the prophets, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you and the things that have now been announced. And so, real quickly, 
Peter's saying, hey, as they were writing these prophecies about a coming Messiah that the Spirit revealed to him, they wouldn't be the one to get to see him, even though they longed to. So it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, and the things that have now been announced to you, through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit. Remember that line. Through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit. Watch this. Sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. So Peter, again, he's trying to restore to us the joy of our salvation. He's trying to get us to get this glimpse of how unbelievable it is that we're saved. Talks about the Old Testament prophets, says, church, I want you to know, these incredible old men, they knew the Savior was coming, and they wanted to know who he was, they longed to experience themselves, but they never got to. But then Peter just said, there's another group of people that long to experience the grace of God, but they never got to either, and it's the angels. And so, look at the phrase there, things into which angels long to look. That phrase, long to look, it's a Greek word, fancy Greek word, epithmetui or whatever, and basically it means this, this longing, it's an overwhelming desire that cannot easily be satisfied, okay? So in other words, there's something that the angels see. And it produces in them this unimaginable, overwhelming desire for them to see it and experience it, but they can't do it, okay? Now, what are these things, or what is this thing that the angels look at and see, and it produces this unbelievable but unquenchable desire? It's that phrase right before these things, Peter said, were the good news preached to you by the Holy Spirit. So what he's saying, he's talking about the gospel. He's talking about your salvation. The things he's talking about is your salvation. He's talking about like God's grace, God's forgiveness, God's mercy. Listen carefully. Don't miss this. Here's what Peter just said. He said the angels have this unimaginable desire, this overwhelming, unsatisfied desire to experience the grace of God that you got to experience. Why do they have that? Where's that come? What does that mean? Why do the angels have this incredible desire and longing in them to experience the grace of God? Well, think about this. Well, the theological question for you. What is the one aspect of God's character that the angels never get to experience? It's his grace. It's forgiveness. If you think about it, the angels have been with God from the beginning, but but what happened? One group of angels sinned, right? They sinned and they fell. Satan said, God, I'm out. I'm going to do my own thing. Some angels followed with him, and so God kicked them out of heaven. And when they sinned, here's the thing you need to understand, is that God never offered those fallen angels forgiveness. And so the fallen angels, they're done. They can't trust in Christ as Lord and Savior. God never makes that offer to them. And so the grace and forgiveness of God is something they can never experience. But there's another group of angels, which are the good guys. We like them. Gabriel, Michael. Those are awesome guys. Check this out. Those angels never sinned. They never sinned. God created the angels. Other angels sinned and fell. They didn't. And they've never, ever sinned. And so they've never had the need for the forgiveness and the grace of Almighty God. So what is the one thing, the one aspect of God's character that they will never experience in its forgiveness? It's grace. They experience everything else about God. 
They experience his beauty. They're in his presence. They experience his majesty. They, they see and experience his glory. They get, to, they get to experience and bask in his love. They get to experience his holiness. Every single attribute, his omniscience, everything about God, they get to personally experience but one thing, and that is his grace and his forgiveness. And so the day that you got saved, the moment that, like there was a moment where you trusted in Christ as your Lord and Savior, what Peter's saying, again, he's trying to remind you how unbelievable your salvation is. And he says, here's what you need to know. That at the moment you became a Christian, the moment you received your salvation, the angels saw that. And when they saw that happen, you when, you, when you were saved, they saw it. And one thing the scripture tells us is that the angels rejoiced. They went bananas. But as they were shouting and cheering and celebrating your salvation, the other thing the scripture just told us is in that moment, it produced in them this unbelievable longing because they longed to experience that forgiveness and grace that you just did, but they never will get to. And so Peter, again, he's saying, I don't care what you're going through. This needs to blow your mind. I don't care how much you're suffering and, and all that stuff. There's something that ought to bring you joy, and it's this. That the day you became a Christian, you, and you believed and you received the forgiveness and grace of God, you saw and you, for, and you experienced something that the greatest men and women of God that have ever lived longed to see and experience, but they never got to, and you saw and you experienced what the angelic armies of God longed to experience, and they never will. And I was thinking about it. And I really do believe this. In light of what Peter's saying today, that there's this thing we have, it's called salvation. Prophets didn't get to receive it. Angels long for it, but never will. It hit me that all these prophets and angels have seen some pretty amazing stuff, amen? I mean, you got Moses. He saw God part the Red Sea right in front of his eyes. We just sang about it a few minutes ago. God saw it with his own eyes. Enemies are coming, they're about to take him out. God parts the sea. They walk through it, dry land. As they get across the other side, God closes the Red Sea, destroys his enemies. Moses got to experience that incredible miracle. You got David. Think about the stuff David saw. He's just a kid. He finds out he's going to be king. Israel's army are up on top of this ridge, and they're scared to death because this nine-foot-tall guy is taunting them and saying, hey, send somebody down here. If you think you're so awesome, if God's so awesome, and David hears that and said, who? Who's this uncircumcised Philistine that's taunting the armies of a living God? Ain't none of y'all going to come down? I'll go down there. And he goes down there, and he prays, says, God, deliver me, picks up a rock, slings the rock, knocks the dude down, cuts his head off. You think that was in his power? No, later on, David says that he knew that that was the power of Almighty God that did it. David got to experience this unbelievable power of God and the miracle of him killing a guy he never should have killed because the power and the anointing of the Lord, it was on them. You have, you have Ezekiel. You want to think talk about miracles. Ezekiel saw a miracle, one of the prophets. He, he, he had these, this army that had been killed a long time ago and their bones to the point where they were dry and God breathes life into this army and Ezekiel saw with his own eyes God bring thousands of these 
soldiers back to life. That's a miracle. You think about Michael and Gabriel and all the stuff they've got to see. They're in the presence of Almighty God. How cool would that be? They, they get to see the living creatures. Shout out all day and all night. You're holy, you're holy, you're holy. Think about all the cool stuff that Michael and Gabriel have gotten to do, all the battles they've fought for the Lord, all the victories they've seen through their hands that the Lord sent them on. They've fought demons. They've fought the devil. They whipped him. It's amazing all the stuff they've got to do, but it hit me this week that I bet all those men and all those angels would trade places with you just like that because you got to experience the greatest gift and the greatest miracle of all, which is the miracle of your salvation. The miracle that your sins are completely forgiven by this coming Messiah. And that's why Jesus said in Matthew 13, 16, blessed are your eyes, talking to the disciples, blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. Jesus said, for truly I say to you, many prophets... And many righteous people long to see what you see and did not see and hear what you hear and did not hear. It's amazing. I want to end today with just a, a pretty simple question. Have you lost the joy of your salvation? Because there was a time in your life when you became a believer and in that moment your eyes met his and you gave your life to him, there was a moment, and the joy that overcame you in that moment is profound and crazy, and all you knew is you want to follow him the rest of your life. Have you lost that? Has it been a long time since the gospel and the thought of the gospel made you weep? When was the last time that it hit you? That I was a sinner, that I was dead in my trespasses and in my sins, that I was going to hell for eternity, but God stepped into the picture and he went after me, left the 99, went after me, put me on his shoulders, carried me home rejoicing, shed his blood to pay for all my sins so that now when God looks at me, even though I still sin at times, he doesn't see a sinner, but he sees a completely holy, blameless, forgiven, clean, child, son or daughter of the living God. When is the last time that the reality of that hit you in such a way that you wept and then when you got done weeping, you jumped for joy. Maybe it's been a while. Maybe it's been a while. Maybe it's because like the people that Peter is writing, you're going through a trial. And maybe it's something going on at work or it's your health. It's spouse's health. Maybe it's a Maybe it's something happening in your family, a child that's running from God. Maybe, maybe you just honestly, your life isn't turning out the way that you thought it should. And maybe, you know, as much as you hate it and as much as you fight against it, God honestly just feels really distant right now. And you're hearing all this stuff and you're like, yeah, I mean, that's really cool. Mad angels and prophets and stuff, but I'm just not feeling it. Maybe you have a sin in your life. Maybe you're stuck in a pattern of sexual sin or bitterness or fear or selfish ambition, love of money. And that sin has sort of hung on so long that it's sort of taken root in your heart and you're 
love for Jesus is growing a little cold, getting a little numb, getting a little dulled. Maybe for some of you, it's not some big trial or some big sin, but it's just a busyness of life. It's good stuff. You're raising kids, getting up every day and going to work, but just the routine, everyday stuff of life has slowly but surely caused your heart just kind of to turn away from God. If that's you today, I know if Peter could somehow come and, and sit beside you, I think he would come and he'd sit beside you and I think he'd put his arms around you and I, I think he would say something to the effect of, hey, you remember the day when you were saved? Do you remember it? And you'd say, yeah, I, I remember. And then I think he'd say something to the effect of this. I, I think he'd say the, the fact that you got saved, the fact that your sins are forgiven makes you one of the most unimaginably blessed people that has ever lived. And then he'd look at you and say, so if that's where you're at, maybe go back to the altar today. Go back to that moment in your mind. Go back to that moment in your heart where God took away your sin. And if you'll do that, then you'll remember, I promise you the joy of your salvation will return.